Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Aaron Powell. I'm a research fellow here, and I'm editor of our project, libertarianism.org. And today, I'm thrilled to be able to gather in the Hayek Auditorium to discuss the thing that's arguably the only thing more important than liberty, and that's Star Wars. Um, so, But I mean, aside from just the awesomeness of it, why would we gather at the Cato Institute to talk about Star Wars? I mean, what value do these kind of silly science fantasy movies have in a town that's all about policy and governance. Um, and I think, I think the value of it is that Star Wars gives us a way to talk about things. It gives us a, a shared cultural language that we don't otherwise have, but used to be more common. I mean, the Greeks had Homer. And you could always return to Homer in any discussion and use him to explore ideas and have a common context. For centuries, the Bible or other religious texts provided that role, but we don't so much have that anymore in a world of pluralism and multiculturalism and cosmopolitanism and globalization. Those core texts aren't as central to as great a portion of people's lives, but Star Wars is, or at least has as much of a claim to it as I think anything else. It's the, the mythology of Star Wars is shared in a universal way that's unmatched. Most people all over the world know who Darth Vader is and know who Luke Skywalker is and have, even if they hadn't, haven't seen the movies, they have a sense of what these things are and who these people are and what they're about. And so Star Wars gives us a way to explore ideas with each other, to give context to those ideas, to create analogies and metaphor that are meaningful to a significant number of people. And it's also a way to talk about important ideas outside of the rough and tumble of ideology and partisanship. Everyone loves Star Wars, um, or if you don't, there's something suspicious about you. But we can, so we can talk about these, these important issues without the defensiveness that comes with talking about them from the perspective of what should Congress do or how should government act. But I mean, really it's just a lot of fun. Um, so today I'm happy to have our, our three guests to talk about different ways to talk about Star Wars. I will introduce all three now, and then we'll go through them, and then have some time at the end for audience questions. Our first speaker is Cass Sunstein. He is the Robert Walmsley University professor at Harvard, where he is founder and director of the Program on Behavioral Economics and Public Policy. He has served as administrator of the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs and is a member of the President's Review Group on Intelligence and Communications Technologies. He's the author of many books. His newest is The World According to Star Wars. Our second speaker will be Ilias Soman. He's professor of law at George Mason University. He's author of Democracy and Political Ignorance, Why Smaller Government is Smarter. 
and the Grasping Hand, Kilo versus City of New London and the Limits of Eminent Domain, and co-author of A Conspiracy Against Obamacare, The Bollock Conspiracy and the Healthcare Case. He also blogs at the popular blog, Volat Conspiracy, affiliated with the Washington Post. And finally, we have Michael Cannon. He is the Cato Institute's Director of Health Policy Studies, the co-editor of Replacing Obamacare, the Cato Institute on Healthcare Reform, and co-author of Healthy Competition, What's Holding Back Healthcare and How to Free It. And he also serves as my frequent interlocutor here in the office on all things Star Wars. Okay, great. Uh, it's a particular honor to be here. Uh, given the name of this room, Hayek is a hero of mine, and also the uh, extraordinary work done here on so many issues, regulation, topic of keen interest to yours truly is uh, something on which the contributions in this building are manifold and, uh, and fabulous. So uh, Star Wars, I'll tell you the very moment when I decided I had to do this book. It was 2015, late, uh, when I'd been scribbling a bit, and I found myself at a cocktail party talking to a high-level Russian official at a time when relations between the United States and Russia were not at their very warmest. And the conversation was fine, but uh, slightly awkward, uh, American talking to Russian. And he asked me what I was working on, and I said, a book about Star Wars. And instead of walking away, the high-level Russian official lost about 40 years on his face. He looked like a boy again. And he said with uh, a grin and a kind of primal joy, oh, in my country, we love Star Wars. OK. Uh, in terms of the, we need the clicker to work. We have a, we need tech, this shows you the limits of planning. We have a, you don't want to stare at that for the whole time, do you? You're about to see scenes from Star Wars from unreleased movies. You're about to see. It's going to be amazing. Okay. There you go. Okay, so that's Star Wars. Uh, there's the narrow origin of this project. That's my son who at the age of five, he's now seven, became quite obsessed with Star Wars, and that led to a puzzle. Why did Star Wars succeed? Uh, this is a question, I think, that has both particular and general interest. It raises questions about the ideas, uh, uh, the success of ideas, uh, whether libertarianism is going to have a breakout in the next year. Uh, why was it that LBGT rights had a kind of flowering in the last period? Why do politicians, including Mr. Trump and President Obama, become spectacularly successful? Uh, why are rebellions and product success often essentially unpredictable? Uh, that is true, by the way, and we'll talk a little bit about this, of the success of some cultural products. Star Wars success was not anticipated. 
Okay, there, my epigraph comes from A Clash of the Titans. That is Lawrence Kasdan, one of the authors of the great Star Wars movies, at least three of them, and George Lucas, the uh, genius, I think, behind the Star Wars saga. Uh, there was a dialogue miraculously captured in real time between Kasdan and Lucas, in which Kasdan said, George, Luke should die. And Lucas responded, Luke Skywalker is not going to die. And then Kasdan said, well, well, somebody important should die. And Leia should die. And Lucas said, Leia's, Leia's not going to die. And then Kasdan said, well, Yoda should die. Not, by the way, in the kind of half-die way he died. Yoda should die, die. And, uh, and Lucas said, Yoda's not going to die. And then Kasdan said, with great feeling, somebody, George, has to die. I'm saying that the movie has more emotional weight if someone you love is lost along the way. The journey has more impact. And Kasdan said that, I think, from the deepest parts of his artistic soul. Uh, Lucas also got access to the deepest part, I think, of his artistic soul. And he said, I don't like that, and I don't believe that. OK, uh, to date, the franchise has earned more than $30 billion. That's more than the GDP of about 90 of the world's nations. If Star Wars were a nation and its earnings were at GDP, it would be about the middle of the 193 nations in the world. It has become the defining saga of our time. Uh, the Democratic nominee for the presidency uh, ended one of the debates. You may remember this, saying, may the force be with you. The President of the United States ended a news conference saying, I'm sorry, guys, I've got to go see Star Wars. Senator Cruz advertised one of the Republican debates, basically emphasizing Star Wars and connecting it to the debates. And what I discovered post-book, Mr. Trump had an entire episode of The Apprentice populated by Star Wars characters in which he had interesting discussions with Darth Vader. How did this happen? No one expected that it would be a hit. Throughout its production, there was basic apathy toward the project with Fox, and the executives had little faith in the film or its director. They hoped a lot of times that it would just go away. Harrison Ford, Han Solo, said it was ridiculous. There was Alec Guinness walking around talking to a guy in a dog costume. All of the actors thought it was pretty much hopeless. In terms of sheer numbers, Fox, the studio, hoped for advance guarantees of $10 million. That's a little like an Austin Powers moment. $10 million? In the movie business, that's pathetic. They only got $1.5 million. That's to say the movie theaters didn't want to put it in the cinema. Fox itself didn't have high hopes even before the movie theater showed no interest. It did not print enough celluloid even to meet the early demand. The studio literally didn't think it was worth the celluloid on which it was printed. Guess how many trailers they had of the Star Wars movie? Two, at Christmas time and around Easter. That was it. That's the minimum. In fact, Someone who had faith in Lucas had to work very hard to get it, and what we now know as A New Hope, into the original theaters. 
The movie theaters didn't want to do it. It was only placed in dozens of theaters in its initial week. A, a movie bound for success would be in hundreds, just dozens of theaters. Okay, what happened here? Okay, here's the first tale. It has to do with social influences on culture. And I want you to think, if you'd be so kind, of politicians, products, ideas, as well as books, movie, and music. This is an account that could be generalized to all of them. If you know the movie Sugar Man, which won the Oscar several years ago, uh, you will know the astounding plot. The plot is a musician from the early 70s named Sisto Rodriguez, who tanked basically in the United States and became a construction worker, but who became in South Africa an icon. People talked about Rodriguez the way people of a certain generation talk about in the United States, the Beatles or Bob Dylan, was Rodriguez. Now what happened in South Africa and what happened in the United States? Uh, here's a, a parallel tale, set of tales. Jane Austen in her time, I'm trying to make sure you're watching the screen and paying attention because that's an intentional misspelling of her last name. May, okay, maybe it was a mistake. Uh, Jane Austen in her time was not thought to be the great novelist, even among women. Her ascension to the pantheon was relatively late. William Blake was thought at his time to be relatively minor. He basically disappeared and became a great poet quite recently. Robert Gottlieb, you may know, is a mystery writer of spectacular success, both in critical terms and in economic terms. It doesn't hurt that his actual name is J.K. Rowling. Before that was known, he was a critically acclaimed but economically unsuccessful person. Okay, now what we're going to talk about is uh, multiple equilibria and how social influences can spark spectacular success or disaster. The basic study I'm going to tell you about is called the Music Lab and involved dozens of songs which were on a website. In the control condition in the experiment, you could listen to songs and download them if you liked them. You would see nothing about how many other people had downloaded them. So the basic control condition was an independent measure of popularity slash quality. Some songs did very well, others not, and it depended on how much people liked them. The way the Music Lab was constructed, there were social influence conditions in which people could see in eight different subgroups how many previous people had downloaded each song. We could do that even here where some of you would be sorted randomly into a world in which certain songs had been downloaded, and this would be visible to you by a lot of people or by a few. Understand the setup? The hypothesis of quality is that, in the end, all the good songs are going to do really well, as measured by the control condition, and all the bad songs are going to do really poorly, as measured by the control condition. That's not what happened. As a first approximation, any song could do very well or could do terribly, depending on whether it got initial downloads. A song called Trapped in an Orange Peel, and that is a real song, not a very good name, could be a runaway success if the first period saw a lot of popularity, 
or it could be a disaster if in the first period no one liked it. The qualification to my account just given is that the best songs never completely tanked and the worst songs never vaulted to the top, but other than that, social influences were a determinative outcome. And there's very recent research just out in the last month involving referenda in the United States and the United Kingdom, which has a quite parallel finding, suggesting that popularity often occurs precisely because of early interest, which could completely have gone the other direction. Okay, so the, the idea is social influences really mattered. There's a kind of informational cascade involved in the music lab experiment and in the success or failure of many products, ideas, politicians, music, etc. Reputational forces in the real world often are effective as well. If you find that liking Star Wars makes you more popular, then you're likely to see it and say you like it. If you find that liking the Star Wars prequels makes you take a reputational hit, then unless you are foolhardy or brave or just stubborn, you won't say that you really like the Star Wars prequels. There's something here about network effects also. Anne Friedman, a cultural uh, uh, conversant, says she went to see The Force Awakens because all her friends were going to see it, a mass cultural event. Okay, really, seriously, is this true that the success of Star Wars is dependent solely on social influences? Note that really and seriously deserve a question mark, not an exclamation point for many phenomena, including the rise of famous politicians who benefited from something like early downloads in the Music Lab experiment. I think very highly of President Obama, so this is not meant a criticism of him by any means, to suggest he very much benefited from an informational cascade, and the same thing has happened to Donald Trump. When an empire succeeds in toppling a republic, or when a republic succeeds in toppling an empire, it often does have these dynamics. But is that true of Star Wars? Let's look at two other explanations. Here's a zeitgeist explanation, which is very popular among uh, analysts of cultural phenomena, including Star Wars, and you can think of this for politicians and ideas as well. The idea is that when things succeed, it's not really about social influences in the sense of the music lab. It's about uh, cultural resonance given the particular time at which the person, product, or idea emerges. The time is right. And I'm going to tell you a story here which suggests that this is the correct account of Star Wars success. And I hope this is perfectly generalizable. In the late 1970s, after the assassinations of the Kennedys, Martin Luther King, and Malcolm X, after the tumult of the Vietnam era, and Jimmy Carter speaking of a national malaise, what the country needed was a new hope. And though the movie wasn't called that, George Lucas handed it to them on a silver spaceship. Everyone recognized that a Star Wars, the Star Wars movie, originally A New Hope, was a kind of joyful celebration of human possibility. And the time was perfectly matched to that uh, cultural intervention. On that view, 
social networks, cascade effects, forget about it. It was destined for success in the particular time in which it emerged. Okay, a problem with this explanation is that it's always possible to generate an ex post zeitgeist explanation, and whether it's true is often uh, unknowable, uh, and often it just can't be shown to be true, notwithstanding its intuitive plausibility. So take anything. The most popular X succeeded because of cultural presences A, B, and C. You can put X Taylor Swift or Harry Potter or Donald Trump or Barack Obama or immigration skepticism or um, climate change concern. And then you could put A, B, and C as you like. And it would always look plausible. My suggestion is we're typically speaking of fairy tales here rather than of um, demonstrations. If Star Wars had succeeded in 1950, 1960, 1990, 2000, or 2010, it would be fully plausible to give a zeitgeist explanation, and it would resonate. But whether it's true or not is anyone's guess. So the general point I'm trying to push here is zeitgeist explanations are typically overrated. They are pleasing after-the-fact fairy tales. Social network and informational cascade explanations are typically underrated. OK, third, the force. The reason Star Wars did well is simple, and William Blake captured it. The reason Milton wrote in fetters when he wrote of angels and God and at liberty when of devils and hell is because he was a true poet and of the devil's party without knowing it. That's a mouthful, and it's William Blake speaking of the greatest religious poet in the English language. Blake himself was a true poet and at least half of the time of the devil's party writing, those who restrain their desires do so because theirs is weak enough to be restrained. That's Blake. Okay, in a brilliant essay, Lydia Millet writes that Vader is the source of success of the movie, the most erotic figure in the trilogy, and the only tragic one, because, and because of this he had a terrible beauty. His erotic chart comes because he gets what he wants. He makes the dark side seem sexy. Is that true? Yes. But we need to separate necessary and sufficient conditions. It may be a necessary condition for the success of Star Wars that the dark side appeared with that erotic charge. There are lots of things which have dark side ventures in them, and you've never heard of them because they're lousy, they tank. It is not a sufficient condition. There's a phenomenon called sampling on the dependent variable, which means you isolate the dependent variable, see where it occurs in the world, and then declare causation as a result. That's what this explanation is doing. Okay, what George Lucas did is uh, he took the story of uh, Joseph Campbell, um, who dis discovered something he called the monomyth, which unifies multiple religions and myths. He described Campbell as his Yoda, and he uh, invoked the tale of a, thorough, a hero with a thousand faces. 
uh, and he gave it an all-American twist having to do with freedom of choice. So it's particularly fitting to discuss Star Wars here, given the fact that the beating heart of the Star Wars saga is emphatically libertarian, where freedom of choice, an idea not quite dreamt of in Joseph Campbell's philosophy, it lies at the foundation of the Star Wars tale. Anakin says yes, Luke says no. That's a quote from George Lucas himself. Leia, at a crucial moment, says about Han Solo, who disappears, declines to help the rebellion, everyone needs to take his own path. Obi-Wan says when Luke initially declines to join the rebellion, basically it's up to you. The Sith and Jedi both respect freedom of choice with searingly Emperor Palpatine saying in the crucial moment in Revenge of the Sith, you must choose Anakin at the moment in which Anakin has to decide whether to save Palpatine, who has immortality possibly in his hands, or instead to stay with the Jedi. He says, you must choose. And Anakin, of course, chooses dark. Jedi Luke, in exactly the same situation, makes the opposite choice, and the mirroring there is extremely precise. There's a disagreement here. The emperor, the Sith Lord, thinks that life's trajectory is foreordained. Everything is happening as I have foreseen. He almost chortles at multiple occasions. Yoda thinks differently. Always in motion is the future. Who's right? Yoda's right. Okay, Kasdan, recently, co-author, said, the best line I ever wrote was not in Star Wars. It was an interview in Star Wars. The best line I ever wrote was in Indiana Jones, where Indiana Jones' sidekick says, with Indy in trouble, what's your plan? And Indiana Jones says, I don't know. I'm making it up as I go along. Kasdan identifies that as the best line he ever wrote because basically his political philosophy is there. It's the biggest adventure you can have, making up your own life, and it's true for everybody. It's infinite possibility. It's like, I don't know what I'm going to do in the next five minutes, but I feel I can get through it. It's an assertion of the life force. Okay, so here's the secret. Star Wars is primal, and it's a fairy tale as Lucas said, but it's no mere retelling of Campbell's monomyth. It's a lot more superficial than that tome, if you look at it, and it's a lot deeper. Its real topic is the fork in the road and the decision you make on the spot. That's, by the way, why it gets to five-year-olds and 75-year-olds. With a holler and a whoop, it turns out to be all American, no question about that but it resonated with my Russian fellow party goer because it is universal, focusing on the most essential feature of the human condition, freedom of choice amidst a clouded future. Sure, it resonated with the time. No question about that. It definitely benefited from cascade and network effects. But it's one of those rare things that was bound to succeed. It's just too good. I like that, and I believe it.
Thanks. I'd like to start by thanking the Cato Institute for organizing this event and all of you for coming, uh, and especially thank Cass for his wonderful book and uh, also his wonderful work and many other topics in addition to being our greatest Star Wars scholar, perhaps, uh, only slightly less impressive is that he's one of our greatest legal scholars more generally. Uh, my presentation, as the graphic implies, is going to be about the politics of Star Wars. Uh, and I'll start off by talking about why we should even care about the subject of the politics of Star Wars. Then I'll talk about the portrayal of democracy in Star Wars, which overall I think is very unfavorable. And finally, I'll talk somewhat about the role the political ignorance plays in the story, which is a very big part of what happens in the franchise uh, and also just happens to be the focus of my recent book, Democracy and Political Ignorance. So the way it's portrayed in Star Wars sadly has painful parallels uh, in the real world. Uh, but first things first, why should we even care about the politics of Star Wars? And I certainly don't begrudge anybody who watches the series, enjoys it, and never even thinks about the political issues. Uh, that's perfectly fine. More power to you. May the force be with you if you want to do that. But I do think there is reason to be interested in the political aspects. First, it's more fun and less depressing than the painful real-world politics we're seeing out there, particularly in the current election. Second, many more people watch Star Wars movies and TV shows than will ever read any serious nonfiction books about politics, even perhaps Cass Sunstein's books. Given the popularity of this phenomenon, it likely does have at least some influence on the way many people see the political world. There is now social science research which finds that people who grew up reading Harry Potter, controlling for other variables, have different political views than otherwise similar people who didn't grow up reading it, haven't seen studies of Star Wars fandom that uh, do this sort of thing, but I think it's at least plausible that it has uh, at least some effect. Uh, so uh, more generally, Star Wars and other science fiction gives us one of our dominant images of what the future is likely to be like uh, and what we think the future is likely to be like uh, will at least to some extent influence the way we react to events in the real world and the kind of future that we actually aspire to. Uh, so let's look, therefore, at the portrayal of democracy in Star Wars uh, and at its political ideology more, general, more generally. In the original trilogy, uh, which kicked off the franchise, I think there's not too much of a clear political theme. Uh, Cass in his book says that Star Wars opposes democratic systems to fascist ones. And in a certain sense, maybe this is true, as you can see from the way the empire is portrayed in the original uh, trilogy. They do look very similar to the Nazis. Just look at the way the uniforms are practically the same. Uh, here on the left, you have the 
imperial armed forces on the right, you have actual historical Nazis, and they look pretty similar. In that respect, you can say this is anti-fascist. However, when you look at the way the empire is portrayed, there's very little sense of any kind of clear ideology. We don't know much about the empire's policies other than building the Death Star and blowing up planets with it. And while the rebels are fighting for a republic, we have no sense whatsoever of what that entails. We don't even know whether it's an actual republic with competitive political parties and elections or whether it's more of a sort of socialist people's republic where the term republic is a fraud. We know nothing, at least in the original series, about what the republic is about. However, in the prequel trilogy, to which Cassin and quite rightly pays a lot of attention in his book, uh, we do know a lot more about the political themes of the story, and democracy doesn't come off looking so good in the prequel uh, movies. Uh, anytime we see the major democratic institution, the Senate, the Galactic Senate, either it's being completely dysfunctional because of gridlock, or it's actually doing something positively harmful. It almost never actually does anything good or beneficial uh, or even modestly intelligent. And this is not entirely accidental. I think it fits in with the worldview of George Lucas, the creator of Star Wars, who famously said, a benevolent despot is the ideal ruler. Now, I don't think this should be interpreted as meaning that Lucas created the Star Wars universe to promote the idea of benevolent despotism, but it does reflect his deep suspicion of democracy uh, and the way that it functions. We see this in the very poor function of democracy in the prequel movies. I think you see it even more clearly in the Clone Wars TV series, which despite being a cartoon, I think actually goes into these issues in a more sophisticated and detailed way than the movies do. Uh, if you're interested at all in the political issues surrounding Star Wars, I actually think the Clone Wars goes into them in much more detail than any other Star Wars product, at least that uh, I can think of. And here you see such things as the democratic process being manipulated by bankers and other evil interest groups to promote the continuation of the Clone War, which is harmful to the ordinary people of the galaxy, but does benefit these special interests, and of course benefits Chancellor, later Emperor Palpatine, because enables him to seize power and subvert the Republic. Uh, moreover, we learn in the Clone Wars uh, series that actually the separatists, the people who are revolting against the Galactic Republic, that they actually have some legitimate grievances against it. The Galactic Republic wasn't actually all that great to begin with. Uh, it's not a matter of that you have to make the Galactic Republic great again. Uh, probably wasn't actually all that great uh, even in the past. Uh, so uh, it turns out that it looks like here that democracy does not function uh, very well at all. However, the Galactic Republic isn't all bad. Who is it that uh, actually does good things within the Galactic Republic? Well, it turns out it's the jet. It's the Jedi Order, which is an extremely undemocratic group. It's a self-perpetuating elite uh, characterized by a very rigid organization which raises the children from early on, isolates them from their families. And what's the qu uh, qualification that you need to get into this elite? It's a high midchlorian count which is an ability to use the force, uh, which uh, a skill that these people have, which others do not. So you can see analogies just in real world history, uh, orders, bureaucratic organizations, which are an elite of experts 
insulated from the democratic process. There's very little sense that uh, the Senate has any real control over the uh, Jedi Order. They're usually off doing their own things. They're a self-perpetuating elite. They're a kind of state within a state. Indeed, I think there are analogies here to some of Cass Sunstein's other work on regulation. In his excellent book, Risk and Reason, for example, he argues that often the public has very little sense of what kinds of regulations might actually be beneficial. They don't understand the necessary science. So therefore, at least in some instances, he suggests we want to concentrate power over regulatory issues in various kinds of scientists, bureaucratic experts, and others who know more about these issues or less likely to make foolish or irrational decisions. I'm certainly not suggesting that Cass is saying in the real world we should create something like the Jedi Order to govern regulatory affairs, but there is an analogy here, the Jedi Council and the Jedi more generally is an elite that has better knowledge, insight, and understanding than ordinary people do, and the galaxy, the Republic, works better when a good deal of power is concentrated in their hands. We hear repeatedly that they have successfully kept the peace for a thousand years and made the Republic function better. That's a pretty good record. Uh, now, of course, the Jedi Order, at least some of them, do become short-sighted and corrupt eventually. Uh, obviously, Anakin, who is a Jedi, betrays the system and helps cause its downfall. But overall, their record seems to be better uh, than that of democratic institutions. If they function really well for a thousand years, uh, that's, you know, that's pretty good. Uh, it's hard to think of any democratic institution uh, which can match that sort of record. Uh, now, I should mention that Star Wars is not completely unequivocal on these issues. The most recent Star Wars series, Star Wars Rebels, I think is more egalitarian in its attitudes, has more faith in the capabilities of ordinary people. I'm happy to talk about that in questions uh, if people are interested. Uh, uh, and uh, I think, therefore, uh, that... Uh, it's, while there is some tension here, particularly with Star Wars Rebels uh, being a Disney product as opposed to controlled by George Lucas, uh, so it may be that Disney now, that now controls the franchise, have a bit different vision than George Lucas does. But as I'll discuss uh, a little bit below, the most recent movie, Star Wars, uh, The Force Awakens, actually in some ways is very consistent with uh, Lucas's approach to these matters. Uh, so uh, I think a key uh, question to ask here is uh – why is it that uh, democracy breaks down in the Star Wars universe? Why is it that Lucas has such a negative view of it? Uh, and I think there are several reasons, but the big one is the problem of political ignorance. The public has very little idea of what's actually going on, and they're easily fooled uh, and gulled into supporting harmful, dangerous, counterproductive policies. Uh, throughout the Clone Wars and also in the prequel movies, we see Palpatine and his allies very successfully manipulating public opinion to their ends. They gin up the entire Clone Wars, uh, which seems largely bogus. Uh, they manage to use it to concentrate power uh, in their own hands, uh, and people don't, uh, for the most part, notice. Indeed, they cheered us on. Uh, you can even see this uh, in uh, the uh, most hated character in Star Wars, Jar Jar Binks. Most people hate him just because he's annoying and obnoxious and is not nearly as 
as funny as the creators uh, of the movie thought that he would be, but he actually also represents something more serious in the franchise. He represents the forces of political ignorance. This is Jar Jar casting the decisive vote in the Senate to give Palpatine the emergency powers that he later uses to subvert the Republic and establish the Empire. And of course, Jar Jar is nothing if not ignorant about what's going on. He's pretty completely clueless. That's why he's the ideal person uh, to do this sort of thing. And if you look at the way ordinary public opinion is portrayed in the Republic more generally, uh, it turns out that they don't seem to know much more than Jar Jar does. They, too, uh, cheer on all of the horrible things that Palpatine does. They cheer on the Clone Wars, despite its enormous destructiveness. And they let powerful interest groups uh, get away with all kinds of abuses uh, behind the scenes. And of course, there are obvious parallels here to real-life democracies uh, and the way public opinion works there. And lots of survey data shows that the average voter in the real world probably doesn't know that much more uh, than Jar Jar Binks does in the Star Wars universe so well. This is an exaggerated vision of political ignorance. It does have some connections uh, to reality. Moreover, uh, if you think about The Force Awakens, the most recent Star Wars movie, one of the themes of it uh, seems to be that actually the electorate of the Galactic Republic has not learned anything from their painful history. If you look at what is going on in The Force Awakens, you see them repeating the same sorts of mistakes that led to the downfall of the original Republic. By the time of The Force Awakens, you have the New Republic, which has succeeded uh, the Empire after its defeat and return to Jedi. So what does the public do? Well, they're completely oblivious to the rise of the First Order right under their noses, the same kind of uh, uh, movement as the Sith were before, even though they had the previous experience of what happened to the Old Republic. They don't learn from their mistakes. They're completely oblivious. They don't understand what's going on. And this also actually has parallels in real world history. As I discuss in my book about political ignorance, there are many fallacies uh, that voters fall prey for time and again over many decades, and they don't learn from past experience. One example that's in the news uh, this year is for two centuries, economists and other experts have learned that free trade is generally good for the economy. Sadly, voters have not learned this lesson despite painful experiences like the Great Depression and other episodes which should have driven it home. And this is just one of many uh, examples where sadly the real world is more similar to Star Wars uh, than we might like it to be. Uh, who in The Force Awakens is a potential antidote to this kind of ignorance or to the flaws of democracy? Well, it doesn't seem to be a popular democratic movement. Rather, it is once again a relatively small elite of Force-capable characters uh, who potentially might save the day. Princess Leia, who's leading the resistance to uh, the rebellion, uh, some other characters as well. I won't ruin the plot for you, but as in... Uh, the original trilogy and the prequel movies, the f most effective resistance to these bad trends seems to come from a relatively small elite of highly capable people rather than from sort of a great upsurge of a popular movement uh, or an increase in political understanding uh, or the like. So I think in The Force Awakens, 
at least in this first movie of what I think will be a new trilogy, you see a continuation of some of Lucas's themes, albeit I recognize that in The Force Awakens, it may be less consciously thought out than it was with Lucas in the uh, prequel movie. So there is, uh, I think, this similarity and this constant theme that runs through it. So uh, how should we think about this? I think Star Wars is to be commended for calling attention to this problem of political ignorance. On the other hand, I'm less of a fan of this idea that the way we address the problem is we rely on a small elite of heroes or force-capable people and the like. And I think the way the story portrays the antidote to this problem is not just specific to Star Wars, but rather uh, points to a more general problem with the way the political issues are portrayed in science fiction, but also perhaps in fiction more generally. If you want fiction that captures the attention of the audience, that's successful in the way the cast was talking about, uh, what you want is uh, great heroes and characters that people can identify with. If the hero of the story is someone like Luke Skywalker or Han Solo or Princess Leia, you've got an exciting story that people want to watch. It's much harder to make the hero a well-functioning legislature or a good system of judicial review or a bureaucracy that functions well, not because there's a few great leaders, but because it makes good use of expertise generally. It's much easier to portray a solution to our problems that comes from a heroic leader or a small group of such leaders than one that comes from institutional reform or from putting in putting into place institutions that function well in the first place so we don't get a crisis of the sort that is portrayed in Star Wars. Uh, and the upshot of this is that for people whose political inf uh, vision is influenced by these sorts of works, Star Wars and others, there is a tendency to say what we really need is some heroes to come along and save us. What we really need uh, is a great leader who will make us great again, uh, who will make great deals and have great, wonderful projects. Uh, I think you know who I'm referring to, but he's far from the only person uh, in politics who successfully pushes this sort of line. I certainly don't think that Star Wars and its creators deliberately mean to encourage this kind of thinking, probably much the contrary, but they and other aspects of popular culture do contribute it to it nonetheless, even if perhaps they probably don't intend to. So on that not entirely optimistic note, uh, I conclude. But I will say something slightly more optimistic, which is this. If you're a producer of science fiction or of other kinds of fiction, if you're an author, you might think about how can I tell a good story that will be appealing, but that gives due credit to the importance of institutions and their role in preventing the kind of dysfunction that we see with the Galactic Republic. Uh, if you succeed in doing this, uh, you'll have a great commercial success, but you'll also make a useful contribution to our public discourse. Thank you so much. Okay. I want to thank Cass for a terrific book. I want to thank Aaron for organizing this forum, Ilya for joining us in the uh, uh, K Institute Hayek Auditorium once again. Uh, and you may be wondering why, among all the ner nerds here at the Cato Institute, and there are quite a few, Aaron asked our Director of Health Policy Studies to comment on what Star Wars can tell us about life, the universe, and everything. Perhaps it's because he knows that Star Wars was one of the first films, if not the first film that I saw in a theater, 
Summer 1977, New York. I was five years old, maybe not even five years old. Thank you, Mom. <laughs> Perhaps it's because Aaron and I talk about Star Wars a fair amount. We talk about things like what is the appropriate age at which to introduce our children to the, answer, to, to the films. Answer, sometime before some savage in their daycare class spoils the big reveal for them. Uh, and in what order to introduce the films, answer, machete. Perhaps it's because Aaron knows that like him, and fittingly, I have boy-girl twins, and like him, I raise them on things like Darth Vader jack-o'-lanterns, <laughs> and Star Wars Halloween costumes. Perhaps it's because I will pay, I'm the sort of guy who will pay extra for license plates that read T-H-E-M-X-A. Give it a minute, it will come to you. Perhaps it's because Aaron isn't interested in EU or Legends. Perhaps it's uh, because uh, maybe he just wanted someone who could make such inscrutably esoteric Star Wars jokes that even the most diehard fans would know they've come to the right place. Maybe it's because Aaron knows that late on a Sunday night back in March 2010 when Congress erupted in celebration after final passage of the Affordable Care Act, a BBC anchor asked me for comment and I responded, so this is how liberty dies with thunderous applause. Or maybe Aaron wanted to show the awesome power of Star Wars, a saga so beloved it wins the devotion both of an Affordable Care Act critic like me, who sees parallels between the Obama administration's implementation of that law and the fall of the Galactic Republic, and a former Obama administration official like Cass, who sees such parallels in the Bush administration, but none whatsoever in the Obama administration. I want to talk about what Star Wars uh, has to say about the nature of evil and what this means for government and the role uh, of judges, in particular uh, a topic that Kath raises in his book. Now, a long time ago, George Lucas gave an interview where he explained that Darth Vader did not consciously choose to be evil. Vader became evil, like most people do, while pursuing what he thought was good, or he did evil while pursuing what he thought was good. And people doing evil in the name of good is how most of the evil in the world happens. Solonitsyn writes, Macbeth's self-justifications were feeble and his conscience devoured him. E yes, even Iago was a little lamb too. The imagination and spiritual strength of Shakespeare's evildoers stopped short at a dozen corpses because they had no ideology. Ideology, that is what gives evildoing its long-sought justification and gives the evildoer the necessary steadfastness and determination. That is the social theory which helps make his acts seem good instead of bad in his own and others' eyes. C.S. Lewis struck a similar note, writing, the robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep, his cupidity may at some point be satiated, but those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. As did Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis in 1928, who wrote that experience should teach us to be most on our guard to protect liberty when government's purposes are beneficent. Men, are born, men born to freedom are naturally alert to repel invasion of their liberty by evil-minded rulers. The greatest dangers to liberty lurk in insidious encroachment by men of zeal, well-meaning but without understanding. This dynamic where ideology leads people to do evil in the name of good, it's not exclusive to Solonitsyn-level totalitarian ideologies of the Nazis or the communists or the Sith. It also applies to uh, banal C.S. Lewis-level ideologies and policies, like cigarette taxes. In 2009, the Obama administration increased the federal cigarette tax to finance expanded health insurance for children. States taxed cigarettes at varying rates to pay for health insurance and other programs. Higher cigarette taxes sort of nudge people in the direction of not smoking. And if they still smoke, well, the tax revenue goes toward a good cause. 
But one problem is high cigarette taxes increase the number of violent interactions between citizens and the police, and which in turn increases the likelihood of death. And in 2014, New York City police were arresting a man named Eric Gardner on suspicion of evading cigarette taxes when they accidentally killed him. There were many contributing factors, but it's not an exaggeration to say that cigarette taxes killed Eric Gardner. Yet his death did not spark a nationwide reconsideration of cigarette taxes, not at all. Why? Because of an ideology that says it's okay for government to use such violence as the police did here to discourage smoking and to make people pay for health care for others. Lest you think I'm picking on the left, the body count attributable to the ideology uh, that holds it is good and proper for government to prohibit outright other drugs uh, is probably much higher. In both cases, we're talking about evil done in the name of good. Now, for me, the worst part of the prequels, uh, and I think on balance, they were a net positive for society, but the worst part of the prequels was the implausibility of Vader's seduction by the dark side of the Force. We see evidence that Lucas tried to make it believable, but where the role of Vader's seducer called for a politician, a glad handler, someone who himself believes he's doing good, Lucas gave us a villain so cartoonish he signals to the audience when he's doing evil by changing his voice. <laughs> and yellow eyes, yellow eyes. That's not how evil works, and that's not going to convince a do-gooder uh, with a temper to turn genocidal. But that's how Lucas, but anyway, that's how Lucas explains Vader's fall. We can see evidence he at least tries to make Vader's choice plausible. And certainly by episode six, Vader himself agrees that that's what happened. This, the fact that evil comes dressed as good. And the, the, uh, the, the clash between good versus evil, between good and evil is a clash between two different conceptions of the good, is Star Wars' most important insight into human nature in politics. It tells us that Star Wars is keenly aware of our potential for self-deception and the consequent danger when too much power falls into anyone's hands. So what does this Star Wars' most important insight imply for politics? Well, I would, uh, I would say four things. First. It requires all of us to recognize that this self-deception thing applies to us too. You and I are all capable of the sort of self-delusion that leads people to do evil in the name of good. You may think you may be doing evil even when you think you're doing good. And since we're all potential evildoers, Star Wars counsels us all to, uh, to be suspicious of our own intentions and to approach politics with a monkish humility. Second. It implies maybe we shouldn't let the government to do many things, do too many things. The more responsibility we give government, the more interactions we will see between citizens and police, like the interaction between the NYPD and Eric Garner. As Dallas Police Chief David Brown said recently, we're asking cops to do much in this country, every societal failure. We put it off on the cops to solve. Also, the more choices we empower politicians to make for us, the more squabbling and corruption and abuse of power we will find in the Galactic Senate the more evil doing we will see. And if our ideology tells us there shouldn't be so much squabbling, that people should just agree, then there will be calls to give someone power to end the squabbling and to make people agree. So probably best if we use the course of power of the state solely to restrain each other, to restrain people from harming each other, not as a tool to achieve other potential goods. Put another way, we use it always for defense, never for attack. Third, while Star Wars doesn't have a James Madison-like figure in it, Jimmy Smith's I think was too tall, uh, its recognition of the potential for self-deception counsels against the concentration of power. Whatever powers government may have, a good way to prevent 
the concentration of power is with a written constitution that checks ambition with ambition, self-deception with self-deception. Of course, constitutions and laws are not self-enforcing, so that brings us to number four, finally. Uh, Star Wars, uh, properly understood, argues against treating the interpretation of the law as a creative process and in favor of interpreting the law in a manner that curbs men of zeal who lack understanding. If all law is a peace treaty, where we surrender a measure of our liberty in order to give government powers to restrain people from harming each other, then treating the interpretation of the law, what we call judging, as a creative process where judges can expand government's power or discover new powers, will erode liberty and strain the peace. This is particularly true since, while you might like a particular expansive uh, interpretation of government power when your political party's self-delusions hold power, you will not like it so much when the other party's self-delusions rise to the throne. Now, textualists or, or originalist judges can still can and still do treat the law as a creative process, the creative process that Cass describes, even as they describe, uh, even as they decry the practice. Even so, the fact that they have at least signaled that they want to limit the evil that men do by interpreting government power, power narrowly constrains them more than if they did not. So in sum, the lesson of Star Wars is that nations, planets, systems, galaxies should adopt a regime of liberty whose main benefit, as the namesake of this auditorium Friedrich Hayek has written, is that it is a system under which bad men can do the least harm. Uh, Professor Sunstein has written a terrific book. It's a quick read. Uh, whether you know a lot about Star Wars or just a little about Star Wars, you will enjoy the illumination he offers about those films, about social science research, constitutional law, and more. And my hope is now that we can move on from all of this politics and government stuff and talk about the truly important and controversial stuff, like Cass's praise for the pod race or for episode order or this claim that Padme was somehow solid as a rock or how on earth he can rank Revenge of the Sith above The Force Awakens. So thank you very much. Okay, so we've got time for audience questions. Um, I'll preface this by saying, please raise your hand. They will bring the mic to you. Um, you're asking a question and hopefully a short one. Um, so let's start right here in the front row. Hold, hold on, wait for the, and also um, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Hi, I, I'm Mauricio, I'm a retro student from Ecuador, South America. I have a question for you, Professor Sunstein. Could you talk a little bit more about you know, that, that phrase you repeated twice in your presentation about, I don't like that, I don't believe that, and I, what does it tell us about the prospect of, of deliberate democracy, of a political consensus, and ignorance, because it seems to tell that you know, we are actually rational. We think what we like. Okay, so, uh, so I love that phrase so much. Uh, and let me explain why. Uh, George Lucas starts, I don't like that and I don't believe that, which means liking precedes and helps account for believing and disliking accounts for disbelieving. So what he's exemplifying there is motivated reasoning. Um, and this seems to me, in his case, he's completely right. Kasdan was wrong. I think, but the more general fact is that if you don't like something, you're likely not to believe it. 
and that's a pervasive phenomenon. People who don't like some political outcome or tend to dislike the factual predicates for the political outcome. And you ask rightly, what are the uh, implications for political deliberation of that? And, and they're negative. So that you may have members of the Republican Party who don't like something and their factual judgments will follow from it and Democrats tr true the same, and libertarians the same, and status, let's call them the same. So what, what do we do about that? Well, there's a very recent paper, Dan Kahan is the first author, very recent, like it's under revision, uh, under, uh, under scrutiny for the Social Science Research Network for publication, and as some of you may know, the Social Science Research Network it's just technical stuff. They don't peer review things. So th this is, means it was submitted yesterday. And what Kahan finds is that there's a class of people who are curious people by nature. They want to seek out stuff that jars them. There are human beings like that who, who actually seek out material that's inconsistent with their predilections. They might not like it, but they're prepared to believe it. And that seems to me an extremely overlooked political virtue. I'm not sure if any account of the political virtues identifies this as one. We need a literature on that. The political virtue of a taste for dissonant political arguments. I confess I, I, ha I do have that taste. I try to cultivate it in myself. Um, you know, to find other things that say the Obama administration's regulatory policy so wonderful, for me, that's, that's not that interesting. For something that shows that something that one oneself believes is false, that's really interesting. To, to cultivate that in oneself and in one's society, that's, that's a good path forward. Francis O'Neill, I write, ho uh, write novels and raise horses in Upperville, Virginia. Would anybody agree that Star Wars and The Lord of the Rings, and I think they have a lot in common, had a considerable influence on the foreign policy we were able to have in the 80s and 90s? I don't like that, and I don't. <laughs> so I think it's very hard to trace particular foreign policies to particular things in Star Wars and the War of the Rings. But as I mentioned before, uh, the sort of the basic vision of the world where a few heroes or a few strong leaders uh, achieve things and set the world right, I think that does have a lot of influence on real world politics in terms of our willingness to entrust power to demagogic leaders. I think actually uh, the Lord of the Rings is uh, more sensitive on these issues than Star Wars is, and in the War of the Rings, while we are saved by a band of, of heroes, the Fellowship of the Ring, uh, the story is much more focused on the potential failings of the heroes and how even they can't be trusted with power, Gandalf famously saying that uh, the uh, that even he cannot be, trans uh, be trusted with the ring. Uh, 
So you would not catch Tolkien saying what Luke has said about a benevolent despot being the ideal ruler. Tolkien said instead that uh, there's not one man in a million who's fit to be trusted with power, and especially not those uh, who seek it out. So I think Tolkien, in some senses, represents a healthier and more sophisticated attitude to these matters than uh, the Star Wars series does. Uh, and maybe we should have a conference on Tolkien here at the Cato Institute at some point. Just a suggestion. <laughs> Right back here. Star Trek represents a far more optimistic and uh, democratic vision of the future in the, in the Federation of Planets, uh, but a far more controversial question is which aesthetically is superior, Star Trek or Star Wars? Okay, uh, so Star Trek is much more like short stories or novels. It's highly literary. Uh, Star Wars is more like paintings than short stories. It's visually spectacular. It works, I think, in terms of narrative, but what drives its success is not the dialogue. The dialogue in Star Trek at its best is out of sight good. If you know the episode The Inner Light, it's um, a, a phenomenal tale about memory and loss and grief. And uh, Star Wars doesn't have anything with that uh, literary sensibility. Uh, there's work in philosophy on the idea of incommensurability, which says we value some things along different metrics like a walk in the beach and a friendship. Walk, you know, these, these are qualitatively different. There isn't a unitary metric along which we value things. So you might think that Star Wars and Star Trek, in answer to your question, they're just incommensurable. It's not as if one is better than the other. But Star Wars is better. <laughs> down the mic. Thank you. Um, I'm Osudebo Koje. I'm a law student with Catholic University. And I was, um, I have a question for Mr. Cannon. I was wondering that if um, the healthcare bill was like the fall of the empire, um, what, like, how do we create a political system that is more solution driven you know, instead of um, reactionary or let's, instead of just let's throw away the whole old system and create something new. How do we create solutions? Well, uh, first I said I saw parallels, uh, not a, 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 an exact fit between the implementation of that law and, and the fall of the Galactic Empire, or the uh, fall of the Galactic Republic and its descent into tyranny. Uh, what I'm talking about there is uh, this uh, uh, much uh, remarked and commented upon tendency of the administration rather than to deal rather than deal with Congress to address problems with the Affordable Care Act to come up with interpretations of the law that uh, fix those problems uh, that allow the administrative state to fix those problems itself 
even when they appear to go beyond the powers uh, that uh, exist uh, in uh, that the that exists under the Constitution or that Congress gives to the executive branch by statute. And we can think of a couple of those. Some of them are still making their way through the courts. Some of them are not going to be challenged in court. Uh, they've been the administration has been criticized certainly by critics of the Affordable Care Act, but also in some cases by supporters of it for exceeding its its power there. And there, uh, you have this dynamic that I was talking about where, you have an ideology, and the ideology of the American left is that the government should provide a guarantee of access to health care to everybody, and that's what makes a nation a civilized nation because, I mean, come on, all other advanced nations do this, and they've been trying for 100 years, and it didn't work, and finally they got this law passed, and the threat to those gains and the ideological importance of those gains have caused them to sort of push the boundaries in ways that... uh, some would argue are illegal, uh, and and the danger there, as I also mentioned, is that if you like expanding executive power uh, when there's a Democrat in office, you might not like it so much when there's a Republican in office, particularly if the next Republican to take uh, the presidency is the one who's running for it right now. Uh, but once those powers are in place, they will, uh, they'll be available to, uh, to Republicans and Democrats, you know, to, to all the successors. And so you are uh, uh, concentrating power in the hands of the executive, power that used to be uh, more diffuse and, uh, and uh, accessible only to the legislature. Go back here. Hi, I'm Steven. I host a Star Wars and politics podcast mm-hmm. called Beltway Banthas. Had a quick question for Mr. Sunstein on rebellions. Um, in the upcoming anthology film, Rogue One, we're going to see the rebels before they are technically the Rebel Alliance, a moderate faction led by Mon Mothma and a very terrorism-oriented faction led by Saw Gerrera. And their unifying factor is going to be the Death Star. How do you see that playing out in the real world, whether it be in the, the Arab Spring or abroad or just in political factions here? What brings two disparate factions of a group together around one idea? Okay, so um, I'm going to bracket for a moment the question of what are the real-world analogs and talk about uh, unlikely alliances. So you can have people who are uh, peace-loving but very concerned about a status quo, who are making a common cause with people who are uh, have as their, their slogan, by any means necessary. And to give uh, a local example, the civil rights movement that both Martin Luther King and Malcolm X were part of had some of that feature. And there are some things on which they could be completely in alliance with respect to ends and means. But there are other issues where... King and Malcolm X broke, namely violence. And King thought, obviously, that both for purposes of uh, long-term stable efficacy, and I think for King on independent moral grounds, violence was a wrong. And uh, Malcolm X had clear disagreement on the instrumental question. And uh, a more utilitarian calculus, if you're with me, on the uh, on the moral question, um, uh, you can see in uh, many authoritarian countries now something similar. You can even see it in the American Revolution, where there are some people who were very 
unhappy about the idea of destruction of anything. And there are others who thought, at least if under certain conditions, if it's if it's if no one personally is going to die, it's a, the Boston Tea Party, for example, an example. So we see a lot of uh, of uh, alliances among people who will have basically king-like pacifist inclinations and others who have more, I think it's fair to say, utilitarian assessments. Uh, uh, and uh, the, you can see this in uh, Choose Your Authoritarian Country right now, and you'll see exactly those. I mean, one risk about with the, the Malcolm X one, as I'm calling it, is that it can undo what King prized which is a, a rebellion, which is like, uh, like a snowball that gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And if you engage in violence, then people who are maybe potentially part of the snowball might think that that's not a movement I want to be part of. Blue shirt. I'm uh, Grant Babcock, assistant editor of libertarianism.org. Uh, my question for the panel is, who are Ray's parents, and why do you think so? <laughs> well, um, I did work on the president's review board on communications and intelligence technologies, as well as in the executive office of the president. I had access to classified information. <laughs> and uh, my email was always... You know, I never use my private server for classified, and this is kind of like a Gmail account right now, except more open. And so if I knew that classified information, a drone strike might get me, and uh, we don't want any collateral damage. So no secrets. <laughs> uh, so since I didn't serve in sensitive government positions, I can say what I want at at least a slightly smaller risk of drone strikes. Uh, and I would say first, it's obviously her parents have to be force-capable people uh, because we know that the Hyman chlorine count is genetic. Uh, secondly, there are probably people with a very high midchlorine count because it seems like she has more capabilities than even the average force-capable person does. Uh, and uh, so the possibilities are either that it's some force-capable person that we know nothing about, which is perfectly plausible, but wouldn't fit in well with the demands of the plot, or it's one that we do know something about and who already is a character in the story, at least one of her parents, uh, and obviously, and that would be sort of more in accordance with how plotting is usually done in Hollywood and also in the monomyth of Joseph Campbell that uh, the cast was talking about. So I think, well, I don't know this for sure, it could go completely the other way. I think there's a good chance that Luke Skywalker is, in fact, her father, uh, and this would tie in the story really well uh, in a variety of ways, even though as a statistical matter, one would think it would be more likely that uh, her parents would be highly force-capable people that we've never heard of that haven't appeared in the plot yet, but that wouldn't make for as good a story, so I think it probably won't go that way. I don't, I don't spend too much thinking, too much time thinking about it. You may have noticed, or you may not have noticed, but in my remarks, there was not one single reveal or one single spoiler because I deal with this problem raising young humans. I don't want to give people giving away plot elements to 
people who don't know about them yet. Um, I, I like to keep the mystery alive. I mean, I, I like to, uh, 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 so, so I don't want to spend too much time thinking about that. I will say that uh, I hope that Ray is the saga's uh, opportunity to get rid of all this midichlorian business because it's a little bit... It's a little bit elitist uh, uh, to say that only people of a certain genetic type are able to be force-sensitive force-wielders. Well, my name is Hermes. I just wanted to know if you can a little bit comment on how political ignorance uh, relate to reality. What? Relate to what? To reality, the, the theme of political ignorance. So I've written an entire book on this subject. I'm not going to tell you everything that's in it, but I will say merely, first, social science research shows the public in the U.S. and in almost all the other countries for which we have data is very ignorant about very basic things about the way government works and how it operates. For instance, only about a third of the American public can even name the three branches of the federal government, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial, and there are many, many other examples like this. Secondly, uh, political ignorance, when it's this widespread and systematic, tends to favor a lot of policies that are harmful and counterproductive, uh, but that seem superficially plausible to people who aren't necessarily stupid, but simply don't know much about the relevant issues. So if you don't know much about economic policy, it is entirely plausible to you that what we need to fix our economy is to shut out foreign goods so that we can promote great American industry. You, the, you, don't, you won't know that you know, whenever you go to the supermarket or to Walmart, if you shut out those goods, everything you buy will be more expensive and of lower quality. You have to know some basic economics to know that. And you're more likely to fall for this trap that I mentioned earlier of what we really need to solve our problems is you know, a strong, powerful leader who will cut through the gridlock, uh, who will end the squabbling in Congress or whatever the legislature of the country happens to be. There are many, many more examples of this. Uh, I can go through a very wide range of issues, but these are some of the highlights that uh, widespread political ignorance is a pernicious force. Uh, it affects our attitudes to a wide range of issues. And there's also a second level of it that Cass mentioned, that even when we do know some information, we tend to process political information in a highly biased way. Uh, we tend to overvalue anything that reinforces our pre-existing views and undervalue anything that cuts against them. And while we do this outside of politics, too, uh, social science research shows we're worse in the political realm. Dan Kahan, the scholar that Cass mentions, uh, has a great paper with some co-authors where he finds that if you give people some statistical data on something non-political, say how well a skincare product works, a lot of people will interpret the data correctly. If you give those same people data on something politically controversial, say whether gun control reduces crime, then even people who are generally statistically literate, they will interpret the data in a mathematically illiterate way that conforms to their pre-existing views. And this is true of both Democrats and Republicans, both right and left. I don't think libertarians, by the way, are immune to either, uh, but it's a pernicious aspect of uh, political ignorance uh, and illogic, which affects our attitudes towards a wide range of issues and makes government policy worse and more dangerous than it otherwise needs to be. So right here in the middle in the brown. 
My name is Kent Lassman, and uh, Professor Sunstein has developed the ideas of fathers and sons quite a bit in this new book. And I wonder, with the, with the advent of Ray as a strong protagonist, what do the first seven stories tell us about what is possible in the next two for the relationship of fathers and daughters? Okay, great. So uh, if the political foundation of Star Wars is about freedom, then the uh, emotional foundation is the bond between fathers and sons. So uh, Luke is in search of a dad, and so is Anakin. And in what is the triumph, I think, of George Lucas's career, Anakin, uh, who is named Anakin for the first time in this scene, before that in the script he's always Darth Vader, uh, sacrifices both the cause of his life and his own life in order to save his son. Hearing, I like to think, echoing in his ears the voice of his beloved and the deceased mother of his child, who says as a crucial moment, there's always a choice. And then the father makes the choice to save his son, repudiating his leader's conception of destiny and foreordination. That's really powerful stuff. And that's Lucas's, I think, greatest artistic narrative achievement. I think we're going to see something, I hope, I should say, we're going to see something replicated in that for fathers and daughters. It's going to be really hard to pull it off, but it has to be something like a daughter seeking a parental connection, denied it, and winning it at the end in a way that redeems somebody. Now, who exactly unclear? One way to do a twist on it is to have Kylo Ren be the redeemed character in which case it wouldn't be a parent, daughter, it would be a brother, sister. That's, I think, mildly less powerful, but if that's what happens, it will earn what I think is the uh, least pleasing feature of The Force Awakens. If you haven't seen it and plan to, block your ears, start putting a Taylor Swift song in your ear and thinking it really loud, which is Harrison Ford, Han Solo, dies he dies now the person who gave me the version of a new hope which put me in mind of star wars is someone with whom i saw this movie afterwards she was in the bathroom crying for 10 minutes and came out and said i'm done i'm not going to see any more of these movies Lawrence Kasdan, who, remember, made a big plea, somebody has to die. I thought I was the only one who knew about that dialogue. There's someone who decades later remembered it, Lawrence Kasdan, who in an interview very recently said, I always wanted somebody to die. I I never got anyone to die. Now, finally, Han Solo dies. Hooray. Wrong choice, revered Kasdan, I say. But, but, to your question, they need to make, if, if we're going to see something with the emotional power of what happened in Return of the Jedi, they need to make Kylo Ren not a kind of whining adolescent, but, <laughs> but a horror, horror person. 
And if he's engaged in patricide, then he's a horror person. Yes, that's really bad. Kill your father. Not only, not just any father. Kill Han Solo. <laughs> and so maybe we're going to see not father, daughter, though surely we're going to see stuff about that. But maybe we'll also see brother, sister, which suggests the possibility that uh, Ray is Leia and Han's child and the twin of Ray, which would not be inconsistent with the twinning motif of the original trilogy. Oh, way in the back corner. Hi, my name is Samar Chatterjee Save Foundation. This is addressed to uh, Dr. Sunstein. I remember when you were nominated to the OMB, there was a great deal of excitement, at least in the agency I was with, uh, uh, and uh, that you're going to bring some very big things at OMB. And uh, uh, I didn't know you were an expert of Star Wars, and then I guess by the time your term ended, it just zoom fizzled out. And I was wondering why didn't you apply the Star Wars lessons there? Start with a zero expectation and go up a billion. Well, I, I did write a book on, on what happened in my time in government. It's called Simpler. And uh, uh, we're here to talk about Star Wars. But um, uh, I think uh, the Millennium Falcon in 2009 to 2012 <coughs> It did the Kessel Run in less than 12 parsecs. <laughs> no fizzling for that Falcon. Okay, I think we have time for one more. Let's go right here. This is for Professor Sunstein. My name's Thomas Phillips. Um, you cited a recent study which tied the network effect to the outcomes of referenda on the international scale. Uh, I think most recently we can see the Brexit as an example of that. But in an increasingly connected global society driven by social media, how do you see uh, a way to balance the artificially popular with the reasonable? It's a fantastic question. So, uh, so if you see things as... Uh, attracting popularity because of cascade or network effects and not because of merit, then there's a question what to do about that. Um, you could take, I'll, I'll give you three possibilities. Uh, uh, there's a book you may know about which uh, called Democracy and Political Ignorance, which could say that the potential spread of falsehood among completely smart, rational people, but who are busy and who have families and jobs, uh, heightens the case for smaller government. So that's one view. Another view is that it heightens the case for, let's call them Madisonian solutions, which I'm using in a, um, in a not universally agreed upon sense, but take the Madisonian approach to be uh, insulation of representatives from impulses of the day, both through uh, loosening the, elector the electorate's uh, control over what happens today and tomorrow, and having a system of checks and balances, which may or may not lead to smaller government. I think in Madison's view, 
that wasn't the desideratum for his time. And then a third view, so there's the smaller government, there's the checks and balances slash um, insulation approach, and then there's a third, which is just to, to, be, to increase the authority of the technocrats, at least on issues where the, the facts are really should be the driver. So in a question whether there should be, I don't know, some approach to the problem of highway safety, which I think over 20,000 people die in the United States every year, some approach that would maybe cut that materially, not for a referendum. It's a, a technical question for, for technical people. Well, I want to thank our speakers. I want to thank Professor Sunstein for writing this terrific little book. Um, thank all of you for attending, and now I hope you'll join us for lunch up on the second floor. Thank you very much. Thank you.